ways for um, there to be, to talk about the commonalities, but also to find better ways to work together. Um, I'm going to invite Ajla from Impact Hub um, to speak a little bit about what Impact Hub is and, you know, the space, lovely space you see here. Um, so, Ajla, thank you. Good evening, everyone. I want to welcome you to Impact Hub DC. My name is Ajla Masozi. I'm one of the community builders here. Um, Impact Hub DC, actually Impact Hub is a global network. Um, there is over, uh, there are over 50 hubs around the world working to bring together diverse communities such as this. We are a curator of social innovation. Just like we have African dev jobs, we have other folks who are working on the continent, we have folks who are working here in the States on human rights, um, uh, sustainable energy, sustainable investment, um, in the, uh, environmental justice, and this, and just the whole range of issues to make our society and our world a better place. Um, we've been in existence for about uh, a half a year, five to six months, and we'll soon be expanding to allow more people and more organizations like yourself and African Dev Jobs to be here. Um, if you're interested in learning on how you can be a part of this community, please feel free to speak to after the event, and I look forward to learning more about ways that professionals on the African continent can partner and work with Chinese um, organizations, organizations and businesses. And again, I hope you enjoy the event. Thank you. And for the World Bank IMF Young African Society, I'm
that they can bring to this conversation because if you are a development practitioner and you are interested in trying to have a relationship, there's not a lot out there that you know for certain about how to turn out a relationship affects you and affects your work. And we are trying to bridge that knowledge gap, however imperfectly. That's sort of why, why this event came together. And before we begin, before I introduce our incredible moderator, Jackson, I'm going to tell you um, uh, uh, two quick anecdotes to kind of frame tonight's event. And one is about China and Ebola. And a lot of you may have heard how um, China was one of the first countries that actually sent people into Ebola-stricken countries in West Africa, and, and China sent um, medical aid and medical teams that just sent a medical lab with, I believe, 59 Chinese volunteer doctors. And Chinese Jackson Bungani is a um, is a media reporter for the Voice of America. He's also the host of Up Front, the talk show that I believe a lot of you have heard of. He's also a producer of several talk shows as well. Each week, Up Front reaches millions of young adults on the African continent and beyond. And Bungani interacts with African youth on issues ranging from leadership, education, innovation, and more. Um, his award-nominated blog.
superpowers, two world superpowers, China and the US are currently actively courting uh, the African continent. And that courtship has uh, certain implications, uh, part of the conversation we're going, we're going to have here today. Uh, for, for startups, in fact, many people argue that the recent uh, US-Africa summit was really more about China than it was, than it was about Africa. Um, that's a, a judgment call you can make you know, based on some of the conversations that happened uh, during that summit. Um, but a couple of uh, factors about China-Africa relationship that I'll give you upfront no pun intended, before I call our distinguished panel up here, is uh, that um, since 2009, uh, China has surpassed the US as one of, uh, as the top trading partner with the continent of Africa. Uh, I think they're trading at about $200 billion compared to $85 billion in the US. 3% uh, of China's foreign direct investment goes to Africa, only 1%. Uh, from the U.S. goes to Africa. So you, you can see the disparities in, in numbers there. Um, so our conversation today will seek to look at the relationship and the opportunities that it presents to mostly Africans because this, uh, at the end of the day, affects Africans. This relationship affects Africans more than it affects anybody else. And so let me start off by introducing our distinguished panel. Ask them actually to come before I read their bios. Jijang and Ambassador Shin and Sotipet, please come and take your seats. On my uh, immediate right is Jijang uh, Huang. Uh, she's a master's degree candidate in international development and international economics at Johns, Hop Johns Hopkins University of Advanced International Studies, Science. Uh, after she received her double major BA in international relations, relations and English literature, Juan spent a year interning with the environmental NGO, the Wilderness Society in Washington, D.C. She has also lived and worked in the media. So thank you very much for your to uh, the conversation with you. And uh, we also have Kelly Page, uh, a proven independent global consultant with expertise in strategy and collaboration management across several sectors and continents uh, for nearly 15 years. This is uh, Jibril's extensive network as a trusted advisor. Uh, she, also, she also facilitates US and international investments, and I'll stop there. She, she has a bit more later say about um, herself, she can uh, elucidate. Uh, Ambassador, Ambassador Shin, who I have interviewed before on my show a couple of years ago, uh, one of our distinguished panelists today, has been teaching, uh, continues to teach at the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University since 2001. He previously served for 37 years in the US Foreign Service with assignments embassies in Lebanon, in Kenya, Tanzania, Mauritania, Cameroon, and many, many others. And he also served as ambassador to Burkina Faso and Ethiopia. But uh, he also is a co-author of a, a very important book, one of very few books on China-Africa relations, because uh, 
they said earlier, we, we don't have a lot of literature on the relationship between, between uh, the country of China and the continent of Africa. Because when, when we say China-Africa relationship, we need to distinguish that Africa as a continent uh, has, uh, you know, there are very different dynamics at play in different countries when they are uh, uh, relating to, to China as a country. Um, I'm going to start off by giving each one of you a couple of minutes to start your opening remarks and then after that we'll have a conversation uh, and then we'll have a Q&A, an interactive session because we want to make this as interactive as possible. So I want to facilitate that conversation between you and our panelists. So I'll start with you to do. Thank you, Jackson. Uh, my name is Jijang Fong and I have a historical Humbled by having the plug for him, so he won't. 
But um, additionally, I'm an adjunct professor at Howard University, where I teach international business. And we recently won a grant to develop the first global trilateral MBA program between Howard University, the University of Pretoria, and the Central University of Beijing Finance and Economics, Kuzi. So it's really uh, focusing on how to do business well in Africa um, and having MBA cohorts between China, South Africa, and the US as well. A few things I'd like to share is that when we talk about um, the role of China in the US, whether it's about investment for business or development, there's always this discussion of either or. And there's a few things I'd like to put into context for you to give you perspective. The global map we use today is known as the Mercator map, which was designed in the year 1569, it's old. Um, and there are some advantages with this particular map, it's a nautical basis, but it also tends to skew the size and shape of land mass. So when we're talking about China relations and the role of the US and the Eagle Or, I'd like to put something into context for you. Um, there's a cartographer, Kai Krauss, who uh, determined that when you look at the true size of Africa, that about 14 countries can fit it up into it, including China, India, the US, Eastern Europe, almost all of uh, Western Europe, it, Madagascar and UK are comparable, uh, Italy, Japan, etc. That is a huge land mass. So I tend to not think in the either or context because we often have literally distorted information that really uh, kind of pits um, different um, resources and frames of thinking against each other instead of looking at what's right for Africa. What's important to know is I also advise uh, some of the African leaders as well on the continent. So I do consulting on the US side, but also on the continent. And one of the things they said to me is what's great about doing business with the Chinese is it's just business. And what's not great about doing business with the Chinese is it's just business. So the mercantile behavior of Chinese business was initially appealing. And it is true that there may not be some strings attached, but one has to question you know, what really comes with free dams and free bridges and free roads um, as well. Um, but there is something I'd like to speak to, and I certainly represent um, the African diaspora, which is um, while that, uh, China does not have the historical burden that a lot of Western Europe has, or the US has, frankly, um, the, uh, the US does have a really distinct region as defined by the African Union, um, does have historical benefits. And so as we look at size and scale and importance, not just in terms of the landmass that I highlighted, but in terms of size, we know that with the BRICS countries, right, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, many of them have about a billion. When you look at the continent collectively, it's a billion. And when you're looking at the sixth region, basically those of African descent or the diaspora represent the new world, that's about another 150 million plus. So that's equivalent to another Nigeria or another South Africa. So there's a lot of uh, momentum and interest there. A few more things um, that I will highlight is that um, for me personally, um, when it comes to the Chinese and, and doing business and development, um, I don't do the blame game. Uh, there's a few things that have happened. Um, uh, Chinese businesses tend to do two feasibility studies at cost. 
prior to major projects where that is not a typical U.S. business practice. Um, and that has provided a lot of insight and information um, to African leaders. Secondly, um, Chinese businesses have done a good job at listening to what the priorities and needs are um, in the African countries. And typically when it comes to development, there's something I refer to as donor arrogance. Um, there's not always the listening, but the telling of what is needed. And my full disclosure, I've been a consultant to USAID for over seven years in the State Department. So um, I know those organizations um, certainly very well and are doing great work, but there are certainly lessons learned on both sides. Um, there are about one million Chinese who are working um, in, on the continent of, of Africa and over 20,000 businesses. So when you look at that number relative to the one billion living in the continent, it is relatively small, but the impact is uh, certainly large. What is going to stop is the, um, is the business model where there is not knowledge transfer. And that is really causing uh, certainly a problem. When we talk about development, we talk about sustainability. We know for a fact that is not happening. Chinese businesses are excellent at efficiency in their construction projects, um, with the exception of uh, country I'm thinking of, which you can ask me about offline and why. But because of the efficiency of um, Chinese development in many ways is outpacing, I'm talking about I'm talking infrastructure, it's outpacing some of the culture and the know-how and exposure of the African people. So if you've been on roads, for example, between uh, across, you know, out to Cape Coast, and you see all the signs for deaths because it's fast roads here in the middle of the night, there really needs to be an embracing in terms of understanding the organic growth um, that's needed for people, what kind of education is necessary. So in conclusion, um, there really needs to be a knowledge transfer, and this is one reason why African nations are saying, yes, the Chinese are here, they serve a great purpose, they prove we do pay bills, so please consider investing um, with us, but we are interested in having more than one country really invest and work with us, because we all have different comparative advantages and credit advantages, which I think we can all certainly benefit and realize from together. Probably have gathered, we have been asked to speak very briefly, and Xi Zhang and Kelly both uh, adhere to that uh, requirement, and I will certainly try to do the same. Uh, the idea here is to have more interaction with you and hear what, you, what is on your mind. This is a big topic, and what we talk to may not be precisely what you're interested in, so we uh, look forward to your questions. I'm going to just raise one sort of broad issue taking it more to the aid side, the NGO side, for those of you who are involved in, uh, in that world. I have been arguing for a number of years that there ought to be more collaboration between the United States and China in Africa on the aid side, that is cooperating in terms of economic development for the benefit of Africans. We have identified two areas where I think this is reasonable. One is health and one is agriculture. I must say that my efforts have had almost no success whatsoever so far. Uh, there has been very little done collaboratively by the United States and China uh, working together with one or more African countries. There have been a couple of times, but um, the list is very short. In, in terms of health, to me there are some very obvious areas where the United States and China have something special to offer that could be used to the mutual advantage of a large number of African countries. Uh, one is in the area of malaria, countering malaria. China is very engaged in uh, setting up some 30 
area centers, uh, clinics, if you will, uh, research centers around Africa. Uh, China is one of the major producers of artemisinin, which is one of the um, medications used in um, uh, treating malaria. The United States is also very engaged in countering malaria in Africa, but more from the standpoint of, of a holistic approach, of providing uh, training and education for African uh, health workers, uh, providing uh, bed net programs, treated bed net programs. All of these things should come together in a package and be of greater benefit uh, to, to those African countries suffer from malaria, which is the majority of them. And for whatever reason, it just hasn't happened yet. Uh, there's a new scourge uh, on Tibu, but certainly in the news of late, and that's Ebola. Uh, both the United States and China are very much engaged in trying to combat Ebola in Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea. Uh, but we seem to be doing our own thing. Now, this is an area where probably the World Health Organization needs to take the lead and, and bring the entire international community Area where, even on a bilateral basis, the United States and China would collaborate and decide what each has to offer so that we're not stepping on each other's toes or duplicating our efforts. There are a couple of areas where um, China and the U.S. bring special expertise in, on issues you don't hear much about, like hookworm and schistosomiasis. Uh, these are not killers, but they're debilitating diseases. And the United States and China have both worked on them. In the case of the United States, organizations like the Gates Foundation, the Carter Center, have done an enormous amount of good work on them. Uh, they could be brought into the picture. On the agricultural side, uh, again, China has done an enormous amount uh, in agriculture in Africa, and the United States has too, in a very different kind of way. Uh, but the, the one or two efforts to try to bring the two parties together in a collaborative effort in Africa seems to have come to nothing. Back in 2007, there was an effort to do so.
thank you. Thank you very much, Pastor Shane. Um, I'm going to start off by asking any one of you to tackle this question of uh, China's engagement on the continent. Uh, the U.S. and China have been actively engaged in holding the continent, like I said earlier. But is uh, is there a distinction between what they're looking for? Are they essentially looking for the same thing. Tell me, please, Alison. In terms of the surveyor, is China looking for something different than U.S.? Right. Can can they? Second hard interest is uh, a desire to sell as much to Africa as we possibly can. 
to Africa look pretty paltry. But that doesn't mean that the interest is different. Uh, the U.S. also has that goal, and it's trying to achieve it. The third hard interest is achieving the political support of as many of Africa's 54 countries as both countries can possibly obtain. It's the same interest, and this is in the United Nations, in the, in the World Trade Organization, it's in four around the world. On soft interests, uh, again, the, the, the interests are pretty much similar. We both want economic development in Africa, uh, because in an indirect way, that is of, of advantage to China and the United States. We both want political stability in Africa, because that is a benefit to both of our countries. Now, we may tactically go about it differently. We may approach this differently. We, we definitely do in the case of economic development. The U.S. has, has a political conditionality attached to a lot of its aid. China doesn't. So our tactics are different. That's true. Uh, we also both want to avoid the negative things that can come out of Africa. Terrorism, in the case, particularly in the case of the United States. But even to some extent in the case of China. Uh, international criminal gangs operating in Africa, or other parts of the world too. These problems are not confined to Africa, but there is an African component. We don't want those issues to come back and be a problem in China or the United States. Uh, even something now like Ebola, uh, there, uh, people are getting a little antsy. Uh, people are going to start flying into China or the United States and, uh, and bringing some sort of contagion with them. So the idea is to try to stop it uh, in Africa at its origin. So all of these negative things that are out there are of interest to both the U.S. and, um, and China, I would argue, even though tactically we do go about it somewhat differently.
invest in a project before the UDA, they, there's certain metrics that you have to make, certain conditions, uh, and China that just comes and gives you the money. Well, let's speak to that. I'd like to say that checks and balances are important and strategic alignment is also important. So I understand some of the business constraints and processes as far as donor funds. Um, when I speak with donor arrogance, um, I'm speaking um, specifically in terms of my experience as a board member to um, NGOs, African-led NGOs, who uh, had to go through the donor process. And it really had to do not only with processes, and we had some excellent relationships that we'll add, but it had to do also with attitude. And it has to do more with the telling versus the asking and the conversation. And one of the challenges is that you know, oftentimes it's, there's a matter of shifting risk. So when you're talking about um, doing development on the ground, the implementers of those NGOs are the ones who are often assuming the risk when it comes to development. Similarly, the Chinese uh, workers also assume a lot of risk um, working out in, in the primary, secondary, but more importantly, the tertiary areas. And I, I distinguish those from paved roads, dirt roads, to no roads, right? <laughs> So you'll find uh, many of Chinese workers, for example, in the no roads region, which is also assuming those high levels of risk. But when it comes to the donor arrogance, that has already been shifting. It's not really um, a shift due to the uh, China presence. It really has started to shift because of the size and volume and, and frequency of remittances um, of diaspora in terms of dollars. So we're no longer you know, the big dollars on the table anymore. And so you really have to look at the positioning and what's the value to add. And I think what's really a wonderful opportunity for the donor community is certainly um, strengthening the use of funds because there are often um, some bridge money that are needed across sectors or a bridge money that's needed in you know, less sexy areas. Um, but really, it has to do with the technical um, capacity or the capacity building. And I'd like for that to be explored in a new way. And again, some of those examples can be in terms of the skill building um, in trade, but also the know-how. And that's certainly a value add to the development that's happening in Africa, because there isn't a lot of that. And that's one of the criticisms when it comes to uh, the Chinese presence in Africa, is that knowledge transfer and capacity building really is not occurring. And now that um, many of the international, and specifically Western donors, are no longer the biggest money on the table anymore, I'm really looking at that value add, and I think that that knowledge transfer capacity building and the context of what Africans need will certainly uh, speak, speak volumes to that. Ambassador, uh, the, 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 like we said earlier you know, about this issue of donor arrogance, uh, you feel that Americans should relax a little bit in their demands or their requests uh, to meet some of these conditions before they, uh, they give aid to the continent. I mean, China has an endless pocket at this point. They are trading at $200 billion, the U.S. is 85, so the U.S. is really trying to play catch up at this point. How do they catch up if they're still making the same demands that are tiring or tiresome to, or irritating to the African? Well, the first one is on the issue of uh, conditionality, particularly when it comes to human rights in the face of democratization. Uh, we talk a much better game than we practice. Um, the, the rhetoric strong, uh, the action sometimes uh, does not follow the rhetoric. Uh, that doesn't make the African interlocutor any happier. They don't like the rhetoric or the action, but uh, the fact is that 
across the United States in terms of trade, and it's about $210 billion versus, as you said, $80 or $85 billion. And they've more than doubled the amount of U.S. trade with Africa since uh, 2009 when the U.S. was in the lead. But the United States provides about $8 billion in uh, aid to Africa annually, uh, according to the OECD definition of aid. The Chinese figure is probably closer to two, two and a half billion dollars. So China's got a long ways to go to catch up with American aid to the continent. And even in terms of investment, while it's probably true that in the last couple of years, Chinese companies have invested somewhat more than American companies have invested. If you look at it uh, cumulatively over the decades, total U.S. investment in Africa today is way ahead of total Chinese investment, mainly because we started earlier. Uh, and then if you look at the outcome of the uh, U.S. Africa Summit and the commitments that were made of new investment going in, there's some pretty impressive figures that came out of that by companies like Coca-Cola and IBM, General Electric. And if, if those numbers all materialize, uh, it's going to be hard for Chinese companies to keep up with those numbers in the next five years or so. So it's not really a, it's not completely a question of the U.S. Uh, catching up. Uh, there are some areas where it's behind. There are other areas where it's still well ahead. Jijian, you, you worked in Namibia a couple of years. Uh, is, what, what is their understanding among local communities of, 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 of China's interest in Africa? Well, I mean, I think in terms of local communities, especially in the rural areas, I personally work in a rural area, so uh, there is a lot of misconception and um, disinclination to carry on communication between both the Chinese side and the African side. So, for example, I'm in Chinese presence there um, in the in the uh, shopping town that I go to where I mostly go to the half the town half the shops in the town are opened by Chinese businessmen and some of them are even family businesses that open multiple we call them China shops and I have made friends with one of these businessmen and I when I asked him how how often do you uh, um, go stroll around town or talk to the local people he said never we we never go out. In our houses, and if we have family down the road, we go to their houses. Uh, I think part of it, part of it is fear. I think they fear a lot because they are they are completely aware of the anti-Chinese sentiment that sometimes are very high. So they, they uh, let me say, business. They want to keep it that way. They don't necessarily want to. They want to keep their own way of life if possible. So I think more. I would say definitely more communication is needed, but I think there's been much done, at least both on the African side and the Chinese side, to to go anywhere further than even on the African side. Go ahead. Let me answer that. I think uh, when you go to different countries and different regions, you find different African-Chinese dynamics in the relationship, right? And so um, you've got some of our major corporations, like the the car, Mitsubishi. Uh, you know, Chinese who are, you know, selling uh, at local markets and things like that. So there's a great variation. Um, there's some sentiment in terms of a half Chinese um, baby in Kenya with sex work.
workers, but then you've got Chinese and Eastley uh, with the Somali speaking Somali and, and uh, combining with Somalis and bringing in uh, uh, barges of shoes so they can collectively sell the shoes both Somali and Chinese. So there's all these distinctions so that we have to take a look at um, what's being done, where, why, and what's doing as well. But I'd just like to share um, our, um, uh, something that we've been encountering with the Global Child Media Program, and really just kind of uh, highlighting the 360 is the role of media and how we're informed really is important. And even though we're developing this Global Trilateral Media Program and including uh, Chinese, um, when it comes to a lot of the Chinese development and the business or aid side, you're dealing uh, largely with uh, more senior level managers or uh, you know lower paid uh, workers, and you don't have a lot of middle management or you know kind of young professionals who are really on the continent. And so what we have found is that some of the Chinese students in China or young professionals have very negative attitudes about going to the continent at all. And so there still is a gap. Even though there's a great presence, you know, you're looking at the demographics of who's been going over. So it's true that there are negative um, ideas and stereotypes on the continent for the Chinese based on media, and frankly, based on some of the practices or dynamics that are happening on the continent. But the converse is also true, where in China, with all the opportunities that's happening, you do have a particular segments who, who are not interested in coming to the continent at all. And I did find that surprising because you mentioned, but when you think about some of the activities that are going on, that young professional area is not one that you see a whole lot of as yet, but they're certainly not coming. And before I uh, open uh, it to the audience, uh, I wanted to ask, uh, uh, given the power dynamics, uh, you know, China is a very rich country dealing with uh, African, uh, the African continent, many countries which are really relatively poor, uh, there's going to be an element of exploitation and sometimes abuse. What we've seen in, in, in the U.S. when such things happen, we have a robust civil society that will hold these uh, corporations to, uh, uh, you know, put them to task. Uh, for example, Shell in, in, in the Niger Delta with, with the dumping of oil. But if, for example, Chinese company uh, dumped toxic uh, material in a river somewhere in the Congo, who would hold them accountable? Ambassador. Outside 
powers are immune to abuses in Africa, and we all should be quite aware of that. It's just that the abuses vary by country and by degree. As, as we're getting uh, people ready to come and ask questions, uh, do you want to add anything to that, or Kelly? Um, as,
She's tweeting. <laughs> nice tweet. One more because that was the, the last one was the question. Yes, you in the back, the green T-shirt. Well, generally, I don't ask a question. I have one minute to make a statement. What you all are saying is very interesting, but not very much to the African continent. I represent the United States of Africa 2017 project. What that means, 2017, there will be a referendum on the Treaty of Federation and National Constitution, in which 45 of the 44 countries in Africa will vote yes to be like the United States of America, minimum one billion people. We are told, Salim, Ambassador of African Union, we are going to pay the African Union to conduct the referendum. So much of that will be later. Thank you. Maybe let's answer the first question about. Washington, D.C. Uh, my question in terms of uh, 
equality. My question starts, why the quality of China's products, sold in most in Africa, countries have confidence that they are substandard. Also lack of infrastructure investment quality. Why? I remember this was a major issue and discussion in Algeria three, four months ago, uh, was May 4, 2014, and the Chinese Premier, uh, Lee admitted this, and they say, he said, growing pace in African time. I would like to know uh, what will be the next uh, Chinese plan to solve this major problem. Let's uh, answer those uh, three questions. One, to do with the deals in the continent. There's, uh, does China provide a better deal? Uh, how do they uh, build robust institutions? Um, and uh, the quality of uh, Chinese uh, products, which will be hard to answer that one. Go ahead. You get the best deal when you have competition. And the slowness of American corporations and businesses and investments really from other regions initially really uh, many of the African countries asked China to come um, and others China was uh, looking for the natural resources that Ambassador Shen mentioned and saw vested interests as well. So the deal making is not going to be good when you do not have a lot of players. And so this is one reason why there still is a role um, for other countries in the US in terms of um, the deal making process. But when it comes to the deal, one of the things that China does bring on average is 70% of financing um, with those deals as well. And that's not typical of uh, US business practice. And I think um, I can tie it into the last question in terms of the quality of production. Well, there's a few things. When you're talking about governance for institutions, you know, there really are consumer protection agencies on the continent, like we have here, to check the quality and the safety standards um, of goods. Um, and then, wouldn't it be in your business interest to, instead of paving a road uh, with seven inches of concrete, to do it with three inches of concrete, if you know hardly anyone in that country knows how to pave roads, right? So some of the poor quality um, is intentional, because without that knowledge transfer, you can see what my big face with the night was. Knowledge transfer? Without that knowledge transfer, or skills know-how, if you're going back to the Chinese laborers to do the maintenance of the roads and repavement as well. So there certainly is incentive to have things that, that often um, break down. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of the government is to be held accountable for those deals and for not having um, some of that knowledge transfer, not having what's called business vertical integration. If all those natural resources are on the continent, why aren't then there factories so that you can have production for future roads and maintenance or those transferable skills for other development uh, and infrastructure projects once they're completed. So um, I, it's not necessarily a blame game in terms of going around, but without competition, and this is one reason why African countries are saying, yes, we still want you to please come, you, you don't get the strong deals, but understanding how the money and the financing comes. The other thing I'd like to say is that really there has to be, and there's beginning to be a mentality shift there's been an African mentality of you know, putting the hand out. And that has to do with certainly you know, colonial relationships, certainly um, you know, uh, extended periods of relationships with uh, public uh, institutions.
international organizations like the World Bank. And so I would encourage the continent to look at two-way transfer in terms of business and development and trade and investment because all those natural resources certainly are there and Africa itself is not poor. It's just the mindset of understanding the give and the take. And I think that's the way of beginning to happen. Um, the, the governance piece is an area, again, for development professionals to have that kind of know-how to look at it from the institutional level um, you know, to help uh, facilitate some of the um, checks and balances and quality control and oversight. We think of governance in terms of anti-corruption, but certainly can we look at the strengthening and developing of institutions as well. Thank you, Ambassador. I think the second question was that had to do with institutions. Uh, basically, uh, how I would want to reframe that is, uh, is, is there an interest in, in Chinese uh, businessmen or, or government officials who are doing business on the continent to have robust institutions if they are able to do business easily with some uh, government official who is doing something over the top. So let, let me respond actually in um, an indirect way to, to several of the questions that were raised, and I'll, I'll do it very quickly. But um, I'd like to touch on several of them.
earlier years, they weren't paying sufficient attention to what the environmental impacts were. On the issue of uh, worker safety and work following worker um, local labor laws, basically China was doing in Africa what they do in China. Who could you expect them to do anything differently? And their safety standards, their labor laws are not very good in China. So when they export them to Africa, they ran into some African countries that had better standards than they did. So they looked bad by comparison. But these are instances where the African countries are simply going to have to pressure the Chinese to do better. Uh, when they sign the contracts, they're going to have to spell out, these are our laws, this is what is required, you must measure up. So again, the, the emphasis is going to be upon the African government to make the Chinese comply. Lastly, on, um, if I understood the question correctly, about convincing, how, how does the United States convince um, China to uh, support the concept of political stability in, uh, in Africa? You know, surprisingly, there's probably more cooperation going on on that level right now than there is on these things I was talking about earlier in the developmental sector. Uh, for example, the United States and China are collaborating on UN peacekeeping operations in Africa. We see pretty much the same problem and we see a, the same kind of a resolution. And the United States welcomes the 2,000 plus Chinese peacekeepers in Africa today. There are only about 30 American peacekeepers in Africa with the United Nations or other military operations, but have nothing to do with UN peacekeeping. Uh, and in combating piracy in the, in the, uh, the Gulf of Aden, uh, the United States has been more involved uh, than China has, but China has also been very involved and it's been a collaborative effort together with a lot of other countries. And by, as a result, uh, piracy has pretty much come to an end in the Gulf of Aden. Now it's switched over to the, uh, the Gulf of Guinea, uh, where it's a whole new problem. And so far, China's not engaged there, nor is the United States to any particular extent. Uh, on the issue of uh, Sudan and South Sudan, there has been surprising collaboration after a very difficult start in, in Darfur, for example, uh, between China and the United States. That has continued in the South Sudan, where you have um, virtual civil war going on, where China has very significant interests, oil interests in Sudan. The United States does not. We have sanctions on Khartoum, and we have very few interests, uh, hard interests in South Sudan, except that we were responsible in large part for creating South Sudan. So we owe something to the South Sudanese to make it work. But it, it's a case where, where China and Sudan quietly behind the scenes are collaborating to try to bring that thing to an end, you know, that crisis to an end. So there, there's a lot going on, actually, on this side that uh, is not obvious to the outside public. Okay. So uh, this is on uh, Africa's response to uh, exploitation and how they can, in face of many donors, and I feel like civil society and local response, even if it is at the local level, is very important. And I want to give an example of um, the demonstration uh, demonstration stations, uh, agriculture demonstrations and stations in Africa. Um, during the meeting in Beijing this year on monitoring and evaluation, a representative for the Ministry of Agriculture um, mentioned that they were aware of local However, at current state, they are not willing to share that across. They, they say it is only for internal reasons. So I feel like on that particular front, China has definitely a long way to go in terms of making.
making making the the connection between local input and your decision making process more transparent. But similarly, at the local level, even if there's not a government response, I think even a village-wide or community-wide response to a project can be helpful. And secondly, this is regarding the common ground for governance between uh, for U.S. and China. Um, frankly, political instability or corruption is bad for business, and that's true for whatever project you do. Um, for example, there were a couple, there were several hyperelectric power projects that were disrupted in Africa, particularly in Sudan, due to internal instability, and that is bad business, regardless where you are from. So maybe there are many facets of governance, and I think at least in terms of security and stability, that is definitely something China and Africa can find common ground on. And lastly, this is um, just to add on an ambitious uh, talk on do you get what you pay for? For for many of the hyperelectric power projects in Africa, these projects will go on bid between several different companies from around the world. Uh, there are often cases where you will see, for example, Italian company, German company will offer a price, and the Chinese company comes around with a price half of what they were offering. Now you can imagine what it takes for for them to cut down that kind of price, and you'll get what you pay for. Secondly, these companies are government companies, unlike the Italians and Germans. So maybe they were uh, they were able to operate at the margin, but that's not necessarily what it takes to give to provide a good quality product. And I think Africans have to be very aware of that when they take on extremely cheap bids coming their way. And I think lastly, um, at the risk of uh, being politically correct, I'm going to tackle the last one on the definition of state. I think it's definitely true that. Uh, there's a discussion on how current modern state ideas if they actually fit Africa. After all, these boundaries are arbitrary from the experience. So um, if there are new ways to see that in terms of besides a lot of these states, I think that's definitely worth the discussion. Thanks, Jijang. Uh, we have a couple of hands in the audience. So I'll start with you, the gentleman. Okay, before we go to that, I, we do have a question from Twitter. I'm gonna, you know, bring our folks from Twitter on here. So, at the Obenequo asks, um, aside foreign investment, what's China's take on education in Africa? So, bringing in sort of development projects related to education, are there any, where are they, what's China doing on education? Thank you. My name is Daniel, the rock from Ethiopia. The fact that the Chinese Nigerians going back to China to study. 
wide and uh, they're also becoming more. So how do my two questions are? Okay, one how do Africans can close that educational gap uh, or notice transfer gap uh, earlier than later? You know, the students are going back and they come back and it would take some time to close that gap. And we see that happening in Africa uh, with the policies that David uh, was talking about. And I just want to get an answer about how, how do we change, how do Americans are ready for this, how do we tackle the problems so it's coming up. One more before we hand it to our distinguished panel. That's inside. So I suppose there's a, a, a 
way there that might come into uh, to play. But basically, it's up to the Africans to try to use the, um, the growing interest by countries like not just China, but India and Brazil and Turkey and Indonesia. And the list is getting longer and longer uh, to parlay this to their advantage, um, at least in the commercial sector. And there, the United States and China competes vigorously. We compete on investment, we compete on trade, we certainly compete in trying to get contracts in, um, in Africa, and that's as it should be. The U.S. competes with England, Germany, and France on that, too. China's no different. Uh, so th there certainly are areas where there are competition, there are areas where, I think, by and large, Africa can come out the winner in most of these areas. The one exception may be if you disagree with the concept of supporting the status quo on issues of political stability. And on the question of education and what is China doing, um, China's actually doing quite a lot in the area of education. They have a program now where they provide 5,000 scholarships a year for Africans. These are for uh, five-year programs in China. A year, sometimes two years, for studying Mandarin and then for a four-year degree equivalent to a bachelor's degree. That's 5,000 more scholarships than the United States offers. Now, the, the difference is, that there are far more African students in the United States than there are in China. That's because they have made their own decision and have somehow found funding on their own, or maybe from individual universities. If they want to go to the United States, they don't want to go to China. The, uh, the numbers are certainly increasing, as the gentleman from Ethiopia said, of Africans going to China, and in part because all of these scholarships are available. And in fact, the president of Ethiopia has uh, studied both in uh, China, where he has a PhD, and at Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy in uh, Massachusetts, where he has an MA. So he's covered all the bases. And a number of other African leaders have done similar things. But increasingly, you are getting African leaders uh, going off, or, or, or African students going off to uh, China for education. China uh, is, is, has opened up a whole series of um, uh, Confucius Institutes, which are mainly aimed at teaching Chinese and Chinese uh, culture um, and Chinese history. And they're, they're not degree-granting institutions, but they have some 41 of these uh, uh, Confucius Institutes uh, in Africa today, and the number is growing rather rapidly. And they have a much smaller number of what they uh, call Confucius workshops that are at the high school level. Uh, and then China is sending experts to Africa served in universities in Africa, and China also has uh, its universities have exchange relationships with African universities, just like American universities have. American universities have far, far more of them than Chinese universities have. Uh, well, we're running short of time, but you know, go ahead. Sure.
one of the, um, there are a few cultural distinctions that have uh, really occurred here in terms of they get, you get what you pay for. Well, if you went into an African market, uh, that mentality doesn't exist, right? You get as good as a bartender you are. <laughs> um, so I think there's just some cultural understandings where uh, there was a story in the Wall Street Journal like some time back that talked about the uh, Chinese park bun. And if you go to Beijing, you can pay $2 for a high quality pork bun, or you can pay 10 cents equivalent for a pork bun that basically had pork flavoring, you know, for the pork bun experience, if you will. But, you know, there certainly are those um, attitudes and, and cultural beliefs in terms of, of where we're coming from uh, with that. Similarly, from a cultural perspective, we talk about Confucius Institute and Confucianism, we talk about really you know, the long term outlook and long term investments in, in doing things today that will come to fruition later. And that often is not the mentality that you see on the continent. It's more of a real-time, instantaneous result, what have you done lately. So you've got a short-term trajectory, often working with a longer-term uh, trajectory and culture as well. And I think that some of these education exchanges are helping to kind of shift some of those mindsets where um, a lot of Chinese businesses development might actually implement quickly um, the goal and the planning and the intention is for the longer term. Um, and it's almost the opposite. <laughs> Um, when it comes to the continent as well. Um, as far as philanthropy, I, I also don't know, but I will say that um, philanthropy and give back comes in many ways, and so we have to look at ways in which we measure and quantify um, a certain philanthropy, but typically it's more of a mercantile attitude, um, certainly uh, pragmatic as well. I just would like to quickly say also, from a development perspective, um, I don't think there's a Cold War mentality because I don't think the fight is over who's going to own Africa. That's not going to happen this time around. And I think that's what's really exciting why we're having these conversations about how we contribute to the emergence and development of the continent. And um, you know, people like you in the room, people back in the, on the African continent are not looking for more parceling out of the states um, moving forward. So I don't think there's that kind of standoff. But um, in terms of U.S. presence, um, the lack of coordination with different U.S. government development agencies, U.S. government agencies, and just really um, has caused a, a disadvantage in terms of strengthening um, U.S. interests um, and even some progress in terms of development projects um, in many of the African countries. You see a lot less conflict or stepping on toes um, with some of the Chinese presence as well. So I think that the role of interagency is ever more important. So for example, we've talked about Ebola, and we know that we have uh, AFRICOM and the U.S. military going in. Um, historically, there are not very strong ties um, with you know, some of the aid um, health workers and militaries. It's getting better, but I think if we look at that differently, um, we have ways of being more responsive in contingent um, uh, uh, situations than we could be if we had better
rise of the garment industry in Bangladesh, which is just um, millions of people out of poverty, out of huge poverty. Well, one of the Korean companies, what they did was they took about 69 people from Bangladesh. These were high school graduates, and they brought them to Korea for six months of intensive training. And these people, these Bangladeshis, these are these were men and women of different types, I believe. And they were brought back to Bangladesh. And the current, current garment industry all of these 69 people are now company owners of the garment industry. So I think there's definitely hope of a similar similar reproduction kind of success. And in terms of what philanthropy looks like for Chinese, that is difficult for me to say because I am Taiwanese. Uh, there might be a difference on how we treat philanthropy. I believe philanthropy in I guess the greater confusion community, I'm gonna speak on that, is more community-oriented and family-oriented. And villages in many parts of China are, the names of the villages are named after last name, as in everyone in the village is of the same last name. So you help each other because you believe they are your family, and that's how you help each other. So I think, I feel like that is a barrier that Chinese people need to overcome when they are in Africa. Um, as I said, at least as far as my experience in Namibia, they feel like they cannot find any relation to the local people. So it's very difficult for them to think of how um, and on the other hand, I think this is true, at least for Taiwanese, and I think it's true for um, many developed countries as well. It's that what Africa needs in terms of philanthropy is very different between what you actually need versus what you think you need. If you ask a Taiwanese right now what they think of Ethiopia, they would not think of Ethiopia as the agricultural exporter. They are there are one of the top exporters of Sesame Beans and Sesame Oils to China. However, if you ask what the Taiwanese people, the Taiwanese people what Ethiopia looks like, the first thing that they think of is family, because that was the last thing that Ethiopia made a television for. So I think what I think African countries also need to advocate for itself what they need, what philanthropy needs to do for them as opposed to what other people need to do. Thank you very much, uh, Jijang. Uh, I want to thank our distinguished panel, Tijang, uh, Kelly, and Vashtadashin. We this we could stay here all night. It's a it's a very interesting conversation that we're having, and we haven't even broken ground yet on so many uh, different issues that we could uh, talk about. And I'm hoping that this is just the beginning of uh, this uh, interesting conversation. Uh, but I want to thank all of you on behalf of uh, Nina Abkadev Jobs. Um, and all the organizers, Carlos and Rice, um, thank you very much for coming in today. And uh, you know, this, uh, I'm, I'm hoping that they can organize another one of these uh, uh, discussions, uh, particularly this uh, specific topic, because uh, as you can see, we left so many hands in, in the crowd hanging. Um, but um, I want to thank you again, and, and thank all of you for coming, and uh, I hope uh, we will learn something here today.
others that we came with, started an initiative at the bank called the Warfare Group, IMF Young African Society. So this is a community of young African professionals between the ages of 18 to 35. And our mission is twofold, a platform to discuss, evaluate, and monitor development in Africa. And the other is more of career advancement between the two institutions. We are here if you need more information about the organization. We have events that we hold annually, and we would like to hear more views from you and more young people. Thank you.